0: You're listening to the Sojourn Church, New Albany sermon series, Finding God, Seeing Christ in the Darkness. As we enter the darkest, coldest period of the year, we remember the cold, dark period when ancient Israel waited for a deliverer who would free them from oppression. We ask, where is our hope and how do we see Him in a world that still seems gripped by the forces of darkness and decay? And we'll discover together that darkness cannot overcome the light. Now hear the word of the LORD. Then the LORD came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name the LORD. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The LORD, the LORD, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for their sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, sojourn. Peace be with you. It is good to see you guys. Welcome. My name is Jonah, and I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for joining with us. Uh, Every Advent, it's our tradition, we raise money on top of our regular giving to go to an organization, a person, a cause uh, to help. And if you were here last week, um, you heard what we're doing with our year-end giving. We're giving to Hope Southern Indiana and the Homeless Coalition of Southern Indiana. These are organizations that are Paying particular attention to folks who have been hit hardest by the COVID 19 pandemic. And that's either their own battle with the virus or the circumstances around that with jobs, with housing, with all that stuff. So if you want to participate in that, every penny of that is going to go out. Just in, if you write a check, we've got boxes in the front, in the back, in the memo line, just put year end giving in it. Or if you give online, there'll be a pull down menu where you can select year end. So have been very encouraged by what's come in so far, and we really hope to be a Christmas blessing to them. So hopefully you guys can participate. Uh, this is our third week in Advent in the series we've called Finding God. And it's how, how in this journey through darkness, through isolation, through loneliness, times of questions and wondering, how can we find God? Where is he? Uh, the first week, we looked at the story of Jacob at Bethel, and this, in essence, answered the question, where is God? You want to find God, you have to know where he is. And Jacob at Bethel answers that question by telling us he's right here. We have to look for a God who is with us. Last Sunday, we looked at Moses and the story of the burning bush to answer the question, well, who is God? If we know where he is, who is he? What's his name? And at the burning bush, we learned that his name is I Am, and we considered some of what that means. And in this Sunday, we get to perhaps the most important question of all, what are you like? So, we know where you are. We know what your name is. So, what are you actually like? And this passage that was read for us answers that question better than any passage in the Old Testament with concise clarity. It answers the question what is God like? And not only do we get these beautiful insights into the heart of God, uh, but we also get um, a little bit of resolution to the tension you may have heard of, you know, the God of the Old Testament is one way and the God of the New Testament is another way. Have you ever heard that? Anybody ever come to you and be like, I like the God of the New Testament. I don't like the God of the Old Testament. This is one of those verses that says that's a ridiculous way to read the Bible. That is a shallow critique against the Bible. So we see this beautiful consistency in this passage from what is the God of the Old Testament like? And now here, what is the God of the New Testament like? So what we see in this passage is we get five characteristics of God. So we kind of get five windows into the heart of God, and then we get two behaviors. How do these characteristics show up? What does it look like? So if God is this way in his heart, how does that look like in the way he interacts with humans? The big picture, what we'll see is that God acts like a good father because he wants to be with his children. God acts like a good father because he loves his children and wants to be with them. Leading up to the text of this story, so the chapter before in Exodus 33, Moses has asked God to see his glory, which is a huge request. In essence, he's saying, I want to see your face. I want to know what you're really like. I've heard things about you. I've experienced some of you, but I really want to know you. And in a few verses, we get a glimpse into Moses' heart in this. So Moses says to God in Exodus 33, beginning in verse 12, you've said, I know you by name, and you found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Show me your glory. He wants to see God. He wants to truly experience him, know him like a child knows his father. And so God, in answering this request, invites Moses to climb up Mount Sinai for a glimpse of who he really is. Verse 6, it says, The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, The Lord, the Lord. Last week, we looked at the name of the Lord, the Tetragrammaton. And it's this crazy four letters that we're not sure should we pronounce. And if we are okay to pronounce it, how do we actually pronounce it? And what does it mean? What's important here to see is that God calls out His own name twice. It's his way of saying, it's me, it's me. Imagine a scared child in the darkness and mom or dad comes up and says, it's me, it's me. It's really me. This is what God is saying to him. God speaks his own name. Nowhere else in the scripture does God repeat his name like this. It's an emphatic way of him saying, this is what I'm really like. And this begins the five fundamental aspects of his character. So he says, the God of compassion and mercy I'm slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Look at these five. We can break it down: compassion, mercy, slow to anger, filled with unfailing love, filled with faithfulness. So Moses is saying, Show me what you're really like. Show me who you really are. And this is the way that God chooses to say: This is what I'm really like. And this is coming right on the heels of Israel abandoning God. They. In response, while Moses is up getting the Ten Commandments, they're down there at the bottom of the mountain building a golden calf and worshiping it. They wanted a God they could hold and touch and control. And even in light of that, this is how God answers the question. What are you really like? He's compassionate, which means God understands and empathizes with you. He understands how difficult life is for us. He understands our inconsistencies. He understands our inner contradictions, and he is compassionate. He's merciful, which means he deals with us based on his love, not based on our merit. Um, in, in other words, God's actions are driven by his mercy. So he behaves towards us based out of his own love and mercy, not based on our actions. God gives and gives and gives. He's slow to anger. You could think of this as patient or a word I've learned a couple years ago that's been incredibly helpful to me. God is non-reactive. Uh, and if you're not familiar with that term, You all know what it means already. What is a reactive person like? It's someone who responds way disproportionately to what happened to them. You could think of it as a person with an open wound. And if you you ever had a cut on your arm or an infection, and even the slightest touch, you recoil as if it hurts way more than that kind of touch should. A reactive person is the kind of person that has a 10 out of 10 reaction to a 1 out of 10 interaction. They way overreact. They fly off the handle. They're a loose cannon. And God is saying, hey, listen, I'm not impulsive. I'm not reactive. I remain calm. I'm slow. I'm steady. The last two, filled with unfailing love, filled with faithfulness, great, abounding in love. No one else in scripture is described this way. These attributes are exclusive to God. He is overflowing with love steadfast faithfulness. He will not leave you. His love for you is passionate and continuous. This is what God is like. If you want to know what is God like, or if you're prone to forget what God is like, this is a verse to come back to. It is one of the most succinct, clearest answers to the question, what is the God of the Bible like? He's compassionate. He's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love, and faithfulness. So whenever we forget, whenever we're confused, this is the answer. With simplicity, with clarity, this is what God is like. And what comes after this are two examples or two ways these characteristics of God show up in the way he interacts with us. So in verse 7, he says, "'I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin.'" This is from a different translation because it gets to it a little bit clearer than the one that we had read for us. Lavish is a word that I don't hear much and it's one that we should bring back. Anybody used lavish in the regular vocabulary in the last week? Anybody? Yeah, probably not. Let me define it for you. It's it's a wonderful word that you almost feel like you could taste it once you learn what it really means. Lavish means sumptuously rich. Sumptuously rich. It's extravagant. It's elaborate. It's it's luxurious. What it means is when God invites you over for dinner, He doesn't he doesn't make Totino's pizza rolls and and make grape drink, you know? He he lays out a tablecloth made of fine linen. He has a nine course meal. He gives you the finest wines. So when you think about familiar verses, like God rejoices over you with singing while you sleep, you have to get out of your mind the picture of a father tiptoeing in and whispering soft songs to you. When God shows you his love, he brings out a full symphony. He's singing with a grand orchestra over you. He is over the top and extravagant in the way he shows love to you. He is sumptuously rich, and he extends this love to a thousand generations. It's almost a made-up number. It's, it's unending. Thousands of generations forgiving sin and rebellion. How do these characteristics show up in the way God interacts with us? He's like an unbelievably wealthy father who invites you in to the grandest party you you could ever imagine. And that sounds good. Most of us really like that God. And we get to the second part of verse seven, and maybe it feels a bit confusing, or it feels hard to understand how could this promise be followed right by this next promise. So listen to how it continues. But, I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation. We're going to talk more about what this means and why perhaps it sounds strange to us. At the core, what this is revealing to us about the way God acts towards us is that God acts with justice. God is a God who makes things right. This is, no matter how strange this sounds to you right now, this is the kind of God you want. You want a God of love and a God of justice because the God of justice says no one gets away with it. Wrongs will never go unpunished. He, he loves us, so he provides rules for how we relate to himself and each other. He loves us, and so he does not let people get away with harming one another. If, if you want to know more about this idea of generational sin or how sin affects people, we preached an entire sermon on this over the summer. You can go into your Sojourn Collective app, tap on media, tap on sermon audio, go to the Family Matter series. And week one is all about this idea of generational sin. But so while we're here now, I want to try to tie together these five characteristics and two behaviors to give us some a bit of clarity on what all does this mean when we're answering the question what is god like how do we square these characteristics with these behaviors so the first principle that we need to hold to to make sense of all of this is that god is fundamentally relational but to put that another way everything god is and everything god does is for the purpose of relationships from eternity past God existed in relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's a diverse, harmonious, unified community. He creates people in his image for the purpose of relationships. We see this right away because before anything is wrong, before any, not anything is wrong, but before any sin or rebellion happens, God looks at a human being who's all alone and says, this is not good. Humans were made for relationships. We were made to be together. We get here in Exodus, when it comes time for God to reveal his heart and say, this is what I'm like, the clearest, most succinct declaration of what he's like, and he uses exclusively relational terms, terms that make almost no sense, divorced from the context of relationship. He's compassionate, he's merciful, he's patient, he's filled with love, he's filled with faithfulness. Those are words all about relationships. How do I know? Well, think about if you would describe somebody else in your life this way. Maybe think about, uh, I don't know, I've been doing a lot of real estate stuff. lately. This just came to mind. Think about if someone said, hey, what was your realtor like? And I said, oh, my realtor? She was compassionate, merciful, patient, abounding in love towards me overflowing with steadfast faithfulness. If I said that to you, y'all would be calling my wife and saying, is everything all right at home? You would hear that and say, that's weird. Put, any, put a car mechanic in there. Put a roofer in there. How was, how was your pizza last night? Oh my gosh, you guys, Domino's abounding in love. But now if you said, what's your wife like? And I said, she's compassionate. She's merciful. She's so patient with me. She bounds in love towards me. She overflows with steadfast faithfulness. Can you hear that? These are not transactional legal terms. These are about the way God relates to us. This means. So set back. If God is fundamentally relational, and that is at the core of His character, it means all of His behaviors, all of His commands, at their core, are fundamentally about relationship. They're aimed towards right relationship, both with God, but also with one another. If you want to find God, you will never find the God of the Bible if you're looking for an angry taskmaster. If you are looking for someone who's throwing rules at you, demanding you to be better. You see the relational nature of all of God's commands. Just look at the 10 commandments. Does God say don't lie? Because he just felt like, punishing people who lied. You've heard me say this a lot over the years if you've been coming here. You cannot be in relationship with a liar. You cannot be in a relationship with someone who cannot be trusted. And so God sets up guardrails so that we would learn how to trust one another. You cannot be in a relationship with someone who constantly cheats on you or steals from you or wants something more than what they have. All of God's commands are aimed towards right relationship. If you're you're looking for an angry boss or a disappointed dad, you will not find the God of the Bible. If you want to find the true God, you must look for a father who wants to know you and love you. Look for a father whose love is sumptuously rich poured out for thousands of generations. One of the simplest ways we do that is to receive God's commands as invitations towards life and right relationship. So the first principle that ties all of these characteristics and behaviors together is the reality that God at his core is about relationships. He's fundamentally relational, which means if God is fundamentally relational and everything that he's made is about relationships, the second principle we have to see is that sin is fundamentally relational. Meaning the problem with sin is what it does to relationships. Are there legal aspects to it? Absolutely. Can you find yourself in jail for certain sins? Absolutely. But the message of the scriptures is to see how sin affects the way you relate to God and the way you relate to one another. Now, many throughout history, you know, I'm not the first person to say things like God wants a relationship with you or to talk about God being loving. The the problem is we want God to be like that golden calf where he makes perfect sense, where we can hold him and control him, and we want him to only be one way. And so scriptures describe God almost like a a multifaceted jewel, but we don't like that. So we want to just hold on to one thing and we abandoned everything else. Any teaching that makes God confusing or doesn't seem to fit with whatever message we want or we like the best. And so we throw everything out. And I see that all the time here in Southern Indiana. One of the... uh, How would I say it? I guess the place that I see it most clearly is when people love the idea that God is love. And then anything that doesn't seem to us loving or make sense to us, we just throw that out. And there's a problem there. You will not find God if you only find a God that is the way you like him to be. If you believe that there is a God who's spoken to nothing and made everything that is, and he holds the whole universe together every moment of every day, you have to be open to the possibility that he would be slightly confusing to you a God that can speak through a fire that doesn't burn a bush. He is like us in some ways, and He is not like us in other ways. And we do great violence to the person of God in the Scriptures when we try to make God only this or only that. And so a lot of folks like the first half of Exodus 34 7 that talks about His lavish love to thousands of generations. And then we'll just skip over verse 7. And just as like, let he who has ears to hear hear. Beware of the Christian that loves talking about how much God is love, while also being so mean. Have you ever seen those people? Or they they preach a message of acceptance and inclusion, and then they're so mean and hateful if you disagree with them. Let's not be like that. So let's look again at the strange passage. Thirty four seven continues. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation. So, again, one of the big messages, one of the big lessons of this verse is that God is a God of justice, which means no one will get away with their sin. We all want that. The guilty will not be excused, their rebellion will be punished. The second lesson here is that sin is fundamentally relational. It alienates us from our relationship with God, yes, but too many of us stop there. We think our sins are just sins against me and God and they affect my relationship with God. And we act like we're not part of a community. We're not part of a family. And this passage is saying sin affects everyone around us. If you grew up in a home with addiction in it, maybe you had a parent who was an alcoholic No one needs to explain this to you. Perhaps it was dad's alcoholism that was the addiction. But to act like that didn't affect the spouse or the children is insane. If you lived that, you know egregious sin affects everyone around us. Consistent rebellious sin, it affects everyone around us. It affects our ability to relate, our ability to trust, our ability to love and be loved sins of the parents are embodied in the lives of children. You've heard me share this quote, the patron saint of sojourn, our church wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Dr. Richard Plass. And, you know, a a one-off line he said to me one time that changed my life, he says, if our sins and wounds aren't transformed in Christ, they will be transferred to the ones we love our brokenness permeates outside of us, and it affects the way we relate. It affects the way those around us relate. We must reject the notion of my own personal sins that only affect me. When we are mired in sin, it affects all of our relationships. The character of God shows up in his commitment to punish sin and restore relationships. And maybe that doesn't sound loving to you. How do we square this God of love and this God of justice? If you go home and, and put your Bible on your lap and you read Exodus 34, you'll see these promises come right on top of each other. I will forgive sins. I will extend lavish love, but I won't let anybody get away with it. But I will not excuse the guilty. How do we hold these together? How can God both promise forgiveness and everlasting love, and promise the guilty will not go unpunished. But here's one of the best Bible reading tips I can ever give you if you're crazy enough to try to read the Bible. If there's something in the Old Testament that is hard for you to wrap your mind around or seems confusing, look to the person of Christ and see if he can help it make any sense. The third principle we need to hold all of this together is that the plan of God is fulfilled in Christ. You want to know what God is like and how he interacts? It is revealed most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. So first, there's a note of grace here. There's grace running throughout the entire Old Testament. Well, where's the grace in this? So let's do some crowd participation. 11.45 on a Sunday. Is it hot in here, or am I like having a panic attack? Whew, I feel like I'm having a panic attack up here. Uh, my mic busted in the first Sunday, the first sermon again, and now I'm hot, and I might have to take this sweater off. Okay. So how many generations does God's lavish love extend to according to this text? Thousands. I don't know how many people it is. That's a lot of people. Okay. So the, the love of God, his lavish extravagant forgiveness goes to thousands of generations. How many generations do the sins of the guilty get passed down to? Three or four. So if, if you imagine each one of those promises is a trumpet blast, Deacon Schaefer getting the air conditioning on, my man. All right. Okay, so over here, you've got the trumpet blowing for the lavish love of God. And over here, you have the trumpet blowing of God not letting the guilty get away with it. Which one of those trumpets is blowing louder? Love. How can you say that? Well, what's greater, three or four or thousands you can have 3 or $4, or you can have thousands of dollars. Clearly, the note of grace is far stronger, far stronger than the note of condemnation. By far, the louder note in this passage is the love of God and his desire for grace relationships, which doesn't mean we excuse the word about judgment or condemnation, but we have to see the grace there, and the grace will come and be fulfilled. We get a clear picture of it in the person of Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of God's character and behaviors comes generations later in Christ, where we understand how he can hold these two together. I'll give you one clear verse about it. 2 Corinthians 5, God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So here's the deal. No one gets away with sin because the full punishment for sin has been meted out on Christ. God kept every account of every wrong, every act of rebellion and sin. And then Christ willingly laid his life down to bear the punishment for that, to live as an offering for those sins. And God or in Christ God keeps his promise that he will not excuse the guilty sin will be punished and just as a little bit of self awareness have you ever noticed how much we want a god of grace and love for us and a god of judgment and condemnation for them because in some ways that's understandable because they're the ones that hurt us they're the ones that did this thing but we fall into this temptation of thinking that all of the bad guys in the universe are out there We fall into this temptation of thinking the bad guy in my life is someone out there and we really wrestle to see that we are so often the bad guy in our own life. So the gospel of Christ comes and says, listen, you are the bad guy, but you are more loved than you could possibly imagine. You want a God who is perfectly loving and perfectly just And the only way for these realities to live together is in the cross of Christ. We must learn to love a God of justice because it means that all will be made right. It means God takes sin very seriously. It means that God sees what we're going through. He came near and entered into it and he has handled sin in the cross and empty tomb of Christ. So, we can be confident both that we are wildly loved and God is profoundly just. So, what is God like? He's a good dad who wants to show love to his children. I know this is confusing. I know when we get practical and how this matters in our day to day life, this gets very difficult. I know this won't always make sense to us, but the Lord has declared this is who he is. And in Christ, we know it's true, which means in any and all circumstances, God is wooing us into deeper fellowship with himself and each other. If everything happens for the purpose of relationships, Romans 8 puts it really clearly. Maybe this will help you understand a strange verse in the Bible. Paul in Romans 8 says, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them, which means in whatever circumstance we are facing, we can either fight it and demand a change or wish for all the ways it should be different or if they were different, or we can open ourselves up to the possibility that even in this, even in these circumstances, God is doing something to help me relate to him and other people in a new In a more beautiful way. So I'll try to be very practical here at the end. As we journey through a lonely, isolated Advent, try to begin regularly asking the question God, how are you inviting me into deeper fellowship with you right now? Right now. How are you inviting me to experience you in a new way right now? I wouldn't call it a phenomenon. At first, I thought something was wrong with our church because we kept hearing people who were angry and hurt with the pastors because they were feeling disconnected. And I was like, what's wrong with our church? We've been talking about relationships for a long, long time. And then I started talking to pastors all over the country. We have a church planting network called Harbor Network that we started to start churches all over the country. And there is not one church I found in the country where the pastor hasn't said, people are feeling really disconnected. People are feeling really lonely and really isolated. And that is profoundly sad. The only way that we can make sure we handle that feeling of disconnect poorly is if we expect the pastors to connect with everyone and to help everyone get connected. If that is your expectation I just want to get out in front of that and say, we are going to disappoint you. So here's what I want us to think about instead. We are a church. This isn't a drive-thru. This isn't a Walmart. This isn't a place to come and just get your needs met. This is a family to participate in. And so one of the ways we can help people know how, are we, how is God wooing us into deeper relationship is to take just a moment. You can do it right now. You can do it before you receive communion and ask, God, who should I call this week? We have so many people in our church waiting for a phone call. Maybe you're waiting for a phone call. Maybe the phone call will come, but maybe God is inviting you to make the phone call. So ask God to bring someone to mind and call them. And I want you to ask them a very spiritual profound question. Where do you see evidence of grace in your life right now? That's it. Where do you see evidence of God's grace in your life and see what might happen? For some people, it might be super obvious. For other people, it might be very difficult to see. And that's where we have a privilege of bearing one another's burdens together and helping someone else see. I'll let you in on a secret. Life is hard for everyone I know right now. Maybe some of you feel like everything is going great and this has been the best year of your life. (laughs) Okay. Okay. That says it. That says it, right? That's fine. Everything's fine. I'm fine. And one of the things pain and suffering can do is it narrows our focus and can make us feel so profoundly alone, like something unique is happening to us. And we get this beautiful privilege now of helping one another see the grace of God is still active. It is still present in our lives. We just need help seeing it. So we get to pursue that this week. We get to pursue that by calling a friend. Where do you see evidence of God in your life? Maybe it's not even a friend. That's what I'm saying. Take a moment and ask. God... Who should I reach out to this week? What can I do to help our family feel more connected? And it can be as simple as a phone call. And this is one of the great reasons that you guys are here, whether you come in person on Sundays or you watch online, because when we gather as the church, whether in person or virtually, we have the opportunity to ground ourselves again in the lavish, luxurious love of God, to be rooted and centered there to come to the table of Christ and rejoice in the place where God's justice and his mercy meet. Because no matter how hard your life is or how many struggles you're facing right now, we gather every Sunday to receive the clearest picture of God's luxurious, abundant love by remembering what Christ has done for us. And so we call our minds to the night Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread. He thanked God for it and blessed it. He said, this is my body. Just given for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. When the meal was over, he took a cup of wine, and in the same way, he said, This is the cup of your new relationship with God, sealed with the shedding of my blood. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. So I invite you to take your cup. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series, audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.